Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Anthony Senegor, Senior Medical Director of Polypid, about the trend of rising antimicrobial resistance. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Anthony Senegor, Senior Medical Director of Polypid. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Jay, for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. And um, first off, I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, and Polypid. I work now as a senior medical director for Polypid. It's an Israeli company. Uh, we're a platform pharmaceutical company uh, that uh, has a platform to deliver various pharmaceuticals locally uh, for therapy. Uh, first product that we're currently investigating, hopefully our top line will be out very soon, is an anti-infective product uh, that includes doxycycline to reduce surgical site infection. Excellent. Well, I wanted to talk today about uh, antimicrobial resistance. Um, obviously, it's been a huge issue for a long time now. Why is it still a problem in healthcare? Yeah, I think the the, uh, the biology of bacteria allows them to have been very successful through the millennia to to a variety of threats. Uh, most re- recently, human engineered threats in terms of antimicrobials. So. It's like any arms race. Uh, you have an offensive weapon, and the defense is uh, very effective at some point in time of trying to come up with a strategy. So I, I don't think there's ever there'll ever be an effective way to avoid resistance occurring to a new drug. So you really have to think about how do you pair strategies to minimize the impact of resistance. And you know, there's certainly been um, a lot of sort of antimicrobial, you know, or antibiotic stewardship. Uh, you know, programs going on over the last several years, and, and uh, clearly they were working prior to COVID. Um, what, uh, you know, now the CDC just came out with their report on COVID and antimicrobial resistance. What's your take on it? Well, I think probably a little unfair on, on the episode, right? We were faced with a novel disease that the first uh, really version, that first 18 months was a very severe uh, necrotizing lung infection. So it, it would put a lot of burden on the critical care side of things. And the population that it, it predominantly affected was also at risk for severe multi-system organ disease. So that was going to just be a tough task for uh, the need for broad antimicrobial therapy because of a variety of secondary infections as a result of the original viral illness. So I, I think it was preordained that we were going to see that that uh, impact, um, and all it did was sort of advance the process that had been going on for years. Uh, that we had to broadly apply antibiotics, and then you end up with either incompletely treated infections or resistance patterns that occur because of that. Um, so, how can we reverse the trend of rising AMR and infections? Yeah, I think probably no way to you know put the genie back in the bottle for some of these medications, but I do think there is now to go back and, and hopefully calmer times and, and go back to those antimicrobial stewardship of the, the right antibiotic, uh, either scale up or scale down, depending on what your strategy is, uh, based on known microbiomes for infections, uh, and try to minimize the course of therapeutic antibiotics. Uh, there are some interesting strategies about pairing different antibiotics that may allow one to repurpose uh, semi-resistant 
drugs to be more effective. Uh, but I think it really it's it's try to back off on the the widespread use and try to minimize that pressure on further resistance development. Are we seeing that start to happen, or you know, just from you know, obviously we're not in the you know uh, the craziness of 2020 right now, and it seems like things are starting to die down a little bit. Uh, are, are you sort of seeing those trends start to happen? Yeah, fortunately, Omicron seems to, you know, for everyone's benefit, seems just to be less able to cause severe uh, lung injury and, and sepsis uh, type syndromes, which has been fantastic for all of us. Uh, you know, that coupled with the increasing uh, immunity across the population, either by vaccine or recovery. So we've seen a lot less burden of disease transmission from that perspective. So less impact on ICU uh, care where, where this really it was a problem before. Um, have you seen uh, an increase in AMR surveillance and reporting um, happening over the last little while? Well, I think in calmer times, it's, it's probably more accurate. It's probably the better way to say it. And I think, you know, people were so burdened with actually delivering frontline care that it was just hard to keep up on the reporting uh, portion of that. Uh, no one's fault. It just was you know, a huge burden on healthcare providers, and so I think, you know, you obviously turn to the mi the mission at hand, which is treat the patients. And maybe we didn't get quite as much data in real time as we might have benefited from. Um, so obviously, you know, we're seeing you know other viruses, things like monkeypox emerge, and uh, you know, how do we prevent this similar increase in in AMR when another vi virus emerges as a threat? Well, I think, you know, so there's a distinction, right? So viruses that only cause their viral illness really should cause little pressure on the typical antimicrobials because they're not, you're not even either having to treat a tissue injury response or a secondary bacterial infection. That was really the challenge with, the, you know, the first versions of COVID is that we were stuck with that phenomena to respond to. Uh, hopefully, things like more traditional viral illnesses, where there isn't that added burden, have their own challenges, obviously, but but won't really impact the the AMR perspective from a, from a bacterial uh, point of view. Is there anything that um, that antibiotic manufacturers can do to sort of help with this, or is it kind of all on you know the prescriber to to really kind of get this under control? Well, I think we, we're going to need a, you know, sort of a balance, right? I mean, we're always going to have to be thinking about new approaches, um, things that are harder for the bacteria potentially to become uh, resistant to would be great strategies. Uh, but I think, you know, biology will always find a way uh, to sort of circumvent uh, environmental pressures. I don't think there's, you know, it'd be unlikely we would ever eradicate a species of bacteria. I don't think we're ever going to be at that kind of level. Uh, of therapy. Um, so I think the companies need to continue to investigate. Basic science researchers need to continue to look for metabolic approaches. Uh, probably on the research side, the more attractive way is to go to non-pharmaceutical options that can be paired with a pharmaceutical approach because it, it's always harder to defend yourself from two or three uh, approaches of attack. So if you could really stack a cocktail of approaches to various illnesses, you might retard the, the onset of, uh, of resistance because 
whatever survives one might not survive the other two and then won't be able to propagate. So uh, that is the way I think to, to reduce environmental pressure resistance. Um, is there pressure coming from drug companies, to, you know, to use antibiotics in, you know, in certain cases, maybe more than like you should, like, is that something that physicians feel or is that kind of something in the past? You know, I, I guess I, I would look at it through my career uh, as a practicing colorectal surgeon and intensivist. You know, I'd like to believe we always were a little more critical about when best to employ a drug. Um, obviously, when you see a circumstance where that drug is sort of dialed in, it's hard not to go to that as, as one of the new treatments. Um, but I think we've become a, a lot more cognizant of that the last four or five years to say, let's stick with standard therapies. Let's be very uh, thoughtful about how we apply a new um, species-specific drug or an infection-specific drug to that appropriate circumstance, and maybe only when it fails standard of care. How uh, big of a role does education play uh, in sort of reducing uh, the AMR uh, rates is not just of, you know, physicians or prescribers, but also of patients? Yeah, I, I think I think hard to know now if patients are more or less involved in, in pushing for antibiotics. I get the feeling actually maybe that's a little less now uh, than historically where, you know, people would get a sore throat or an upper respiratory infection and sort of demand an antibiotic, even though most Talk of those are truly vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that that pressure seems to be a little less. Um, you know, I think healthcare providers, because there's more structured formulary control, the antibiotic stewardship, I think the, the understanding that one should be more careful, plus point of care testing has really improved things, right? I and mean, if you go back 20 years, you could, you'd have to wait for a throat culture to know if you had strep. Now you can know in a matter of minutes that you definitely do or definitely don't. That makes the discussion a whole lot easier about whether or not you need penicillin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that that actually probably will be the biggest win in in doctor-patient communication is more upfront point-of-care testing that confirms the fact that you do or don't have an episode that needs an antibiotic. Um, and, and given you know, sort of the uh, increased awareness about uh, AMR, do you feel that um, there's there are enough sort of structures in place now that, um, you know, it won't be, you know, under normal circumstances, not, you know, a COVID uh, craze, but, you know, under normal circumstances, you know, will these sort of things not, you know, get overused just because there are the sort of safeguards in place and people more know about it more? Yeah, I think to the, to the credit of the program, the, the antimicrobial stewardship programs sort of universally, I think that's made a dialogue a lot more comfortable. Uh, and a lot less dogmatic, right? You're you're not just giving me a rule, Jay, that I can't use it. Mm. Uh, you know that I'm having to argue with you. We we now have a structure for that dialogue, a understanding of when it can be used, when it is best used, and when uh, there are other options to invoke. So I think it's really uh, structured the the interactions both within facilities um, as well as. Um, you know, amongst professional societies and at the doctor-patient level, I, th- I think it's made it a lot easier set of discussions. Yeah, because, you know, typically with stewardship, you're not saying don't ever use this antibiotic. You're just saying be smart about it. Like, I was wondering if you could go into a little bit sort of the philosophy behind uh, ant- antibiotic stewardship. 
Yeah, I think that that really, I mean, I think the word is kinder and gentler, a little less draconian than than some of, you know, a guideline or a policy sort of approach. Uh, and this what I mean, I think the dialogue has become more uh, interactive and proactive about it. So the user is already understanding this will be a framework for discussion. The people in charge of regulating access understand that's the, the response they need to provide. And the patient now understands that you're just not going to get the latest and greatest just because we're going to give it to you if you really need it. But there are other very good options that are going to be equally or more effective. So again, I think it's been a, a much more rational um, sort of straight up discussion now about facts and less emotion. And, uh, you know, I think is, is it also kind of where we're at now, a, a doctor is more likely to explain sort of what they're giving them, how the how the treatment uh, is supposed to play out that maybe in the past where you just sort of, you know, you just get a prescription and go, you know, get it filled. Now there's a little more dialogue and a little more explanation as to why you're getting this stuff. Yeah, I think from the very beginning, right? Like we said, for a lot of these diseases, there's quick or even point of service uh, confirmation of the diagnosis. So that sort of, you know, starts the discussion for sure. I know you have this or you have that. Uh, that starts off the process. Uh, there is education at the physician office level, and that's often reinforced uh, uh, to the credit of everyone at the point of acquisition of the medication itself at the pharmacy. So you sort of got a multi-tier level of, of education, which in adult learning is always advantageous to repetitively hear a consistent message really makes for better uh, uh, acceptance of that message. When you hear disparate outcomes, it, it can confuse people. So I think as yeah. long as there's a line in the message, I think that can be very effective. Yeah, because, you know, uh, I guess at the pharmacy level as well, the pharmacist may notice, oh, well, you know, you've, you know, had, you know, you've already had like one, you know, one script of this, yeah. this antibiotic, maybe we should slow this down, or maybe we should consult with your physician or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, or you know, mispairing or drugs that don't seem to be mm. aligned with what we think the diagnosis is. Yeah, there's there certain should be more safety built into understanding what the patient has already accessed. Absolutely. Um, so where do you see things going over the next five to ten years with uh, you know antimicrobial resistance? You know, barring another pandemic that might throw things out of whack. Where do you where do you kind of see things going? You know, on the sort of trajectory that we're on? I think the win will be more actually with the diagnostics. I think more rapid assessment of what is the infecting pathogen, uh, a faster characterization of the drug profiles that will work so you can get more rapidly to the answer of what you should uh, deploy. That, that by nature will allow you to do something easier and simpler early in the course. And maybe I'll only pull out the big guns if it's absolutely clear that's all you have left. Um, so I, I'm really hoping that, that our friends on the diagnostic side uh, will be able to sort of rapid fire those kinds of analyses for us. And, you know, that also makes, you know, the antibiotic that much more effective when you're not overusing it, right? I mean, if you're saving it for that big gun situation, uh, you know, where you absolutely need it, then it actually, you know, uh, has a better chance of working effectively, correct? And yeah, and, and and you should get more effective cure, right? So complete eradication, and that also contributes to a lower rate of propagation of, of resistant forms. So yeah, I think there can only be something 
positive out of better diagnostic capabilities. Excellent. Well, Dr. Senegor, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. You too. Take care. That wraps up episode 61 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show at psqh.com. You can also subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.